Welcome to episode 225 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Canadian fossil fuel apologists and climate deniers have long pointed to the absence of a carbon tax in the United States, Canada's biggest trading partner, as evidence that the idea will never work. It's just not needed. If our, if our trading partner who's responsible for three quarters of our trade doesn't have one, why should we have one? That was their argument. I wonder what they would say about the Foreign Pollution Fee Act, a bill recently introduced to Congress by three Republican senators. I've asked Aaron Cosby, who's a development economist with the International Institute for Sustainable Development and the author of a commentary about the act to explain the act to us. So welcome to Energy Talks, Aaron. Mark, it's always a pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you back. We haven't had you for a while and always appreciate appreciate your perspective on stuff, but particularly on this one, because this one is snuck under the radar in Canada. I haven't seen anybody else talking about it. And I do follow, you know, a fair number of American economists and other commentators uh, on U.S. issues. So before we get into the act itself, I want to talk about its sponsors. Because it's Bill uh, Bill Cassidy, who's the senior senator, senator from uh, Louisiana. Lindsey Graham, who everybody knows, at least knows the name. And then Roger Wicker, another uh, uh, senator from Mississippi. These are all senior senators. They're all seen as very conservative. No, that's not true. Actually, uh, Cassidy's got a bit of a more moderate rep, but I mean, he's still a Republican. And it the fact that it's it's three Republicans from the southern states sponsoring this bill, that's got to be that's got to be important, I would think. It's a significant break from history. So we have seen a number of proposals in the U.S., legislative proposals introduced to Congress by Democratic senators uh, designed to try to take account of embodied carbon in traded goods. Um, but all of them from the Democratic side, none of them ever stood a snowball's chance in hell of getting bipartisan support, not a single Republican vote for any of those. This one is different. This, as you say, is sponsored by three Republican senators from the South and is explicitly aimed at trying to get the kind of bipartisan support that may win the day. And I can't help but think that this has something to do with the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other legislation that's been passed to sponsor clean energy industry, because a lot of the, the clean energy industry, like battery plants and supply chains and 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 uh, and even if we're talking about uh, wind and solar, they they they're springing up in in red states, and and you go, I, I can't help but think that these senators are saying, okay, well look, if we're going to have a battery plant, hmm, maybe we should keep out the competition. You know, let's let's keep China at bay. Is is the what's your take? And does that play into this into this bill? That, that's certainly part of it. And if you look at the details, and we'll get into some of the details of this bill uh, in a moment, but if you look at the details of this bill, a lot of it is designed to protect U.S. production. And whether that's production of uh, lithium-ion batteries or production of solar cells and modules or production of basic materials like steel and aluminum and cement, that seems to be the intent. Uh, you know, and it's under the cloak of a, a climate change uh, umbrella. But it, if, you, if you look at the details, this thing is 
pretty much targeted, yep. uh, I would say, at China. This is yeah. uh, in response to the concern, and, and this is part of the appeal to bipartisan support. There's no quicker way to get bipartisan support in Congress than to say you are introducing a bill that beats up on China that protects U.S. workers from Chinese competition. So it does impose charges based on a climate change rationale, but underneath all of that is very much lurking a, a, a motivation to protect U.S. domestic production across a range of sectors. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt that China plays a very key role now in uh, American policy across the board. Uh, the I, I, you know, regular listeners will know that I read speeches from uh, people like Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo, who talk about industrial policy in the clean energy industry. And the Americans are very clear about how that all fits into their geopolitical plans. And they, I think they, you know, they woke up uh, when the, the um, uh, COVID-19 pandemic hit and, and understood that the, uh, how susceptible the U.S. was to uh, China and its, and, and its supply chains. And they also woke up to the fact that clean energy uh, technology uh, is going to be, it's the new industrial revolution. And they realized that the mistake they made uh, deindustrializing, you know, over the last 30 years uh, is now has come back to bite them. And so they're trying to rectify all of that. And China is the is the big uh, the boogeyman at the moment. It's Cold War 2.0. And, you know, you can see I can't help but wonder that let's you know, they pass this this bill. And then China looks at that and goes, hey, we got 71% of our electricity comes from coal. Huh. Maybe we ought not to do that. You know, maybe we need to lower. But this is, a, I, I talk often about a, a clean energy arms race between China, the EU, United States, and then maybe Japan and, and South Korea. But this is what happens. Once everybody's racing towards a goal, there are all sorts of like unintended consequences you, you couldn't have maybe planned for or anticipated uh but uh, you know kind of a you know uh, good things that come out of this there are there are good things that come out of this and so this is you know this bill is part of a sort of a wave of green uh, trade measures that includes the european union carbon border adjustment mechanism the european union's uh, movement on deforestation free uh, products um, clean fuel standards in canada and the u.s just a raft of measures that think about the embodied carbon and traded goods. And, that, and that's all good. As you say, part of the knock-on effect from that is that foreign producers start thinking about whether they better clean up their supply chains, clean up their production, move to a, a less carbon-intensive mode of production. That's all good. One of the problems, though, with that green wave is that you do tend to get at the national level a lot of vested interests involved in the drafting le legislation. And I think if you look at this this particular act, the Foreign Pollution Fee Act, you see a lot of fingerprints of domestic vested interest playing a part in how the thing unfolds. So the details of these things really matter in their final effect. I'm shocked. I'm really shocked, Aaron. I would that would never happen in Canada. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers would never have that kind of influence on Canadian energy policy and climate policy. 
quite this, for, to us. For, for our non-Canadian <laughs> listeners, Aaron and I are having a you know a little That's bit. It's a little a bit ironic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a joke. But uh, I'm glad you used the phrase knock-on effects. That's the one I was looking for, and it wasn't on the tip of my tongue when I needed it. But that's exactly what I where I was going with that knock-on effects. Well, let's talk about the products that are covered. And this just I, the, the first four or five on here uh, ought to catch the attention of every Canadian: crude oil, natural gas, petrochemicals, refined petroleum products, and then a, a range of minerals like graphite, hydrogen, methanol, ammonia. Yeah, yeah, and a hydrogen. So yeah. if I was Alberta, and, and I was sitting here looking at this bill, I might be a little bit worried. You probably should be. So, I mean, there are exemptions in this bill for uh, trade partners that are in a free, free trade agreement with the United States. And those exemptions allow for, if your production is within 50% of the US GHG intensity national average production, and this is all based on national averages. If your national average GHG intensity is within 50% of the US national average sectoral uh, GHG intensity, you're okay, zero tariffs. But that shouldn't give us much comfort. If you look at the uh, wheel to a uh, well to refinery uh, GHG intensity figures by Masnadi in, in 2018, and I know we've come a long way since 2018, we are more than 50% more GHG intensive than the US in oil production. Uh, maybe not so in gas production, but it, it, it should give you pause as a Canadian producer of petro, uh, petrochemicals, uh, petroleum products, uh, gas, that these kinds of charges are being contemplated by the U.S. and being contemplated in an instrument that is designed to basically penalize foreign production. It, it, the thing that comes to mind here is the oil sands bitumen. Because the oil sands bitumen now is uh, it's about sixty seven to sixty nine kilograms of CO two uh, e per barrel, which I think is it might not I don't think it's twice that of a of the U.S. national average. Uh, I think no. which I think is around forty seven kilograms, forty five kilograms. But nevertheless, I mean it's still really carbon intense oil, and. I, I don't know. It just seems to me that if you were, it's one of the most carbon intense oils in the world. How would it not get caught in, in an act like this? It depends very much on what the U.S. wants to do. So the, the we don't know yet what the methodologies are going to look like, and we don't know what the prices are going to look like that are charged at the border. These are all yet to be, you know, if the bill passes, then those are all yet to be done in implementing legislation. But uh, it's worth noting that those methodologies will be, be developed by an advisory committee that includes mostly CEOs of U.S. producers. Those are the only non-governmental uh, representatives that sit on that advisory board. So if I'm thinking about the oil sector, it's likely that if they want to protect domestic production, they'll come up with a methodology that that's uh, wheels to refinery that includes upgrading in Canada, that makes our statistics look much worse um, and makes us vulnerable to those kinds of charges. You know, that makes sense to me because one of the things we know is, is that in 2017, the sale of uh, internal combustion engine light passenger vehicles peaked. Uh, gasoline peaked the year after that in 2018. Um, I'm not sure if, if diesel has peaked yet or not. Uh, maybe, but maybe it's forecast for the next few years. Uh, but nevertheless, my, my point is that if you look at the IEA's 
and and even the even the latest OPEC oil outlook, uh, what they say is that the uh, that gasoline and diesel like oil demand in the OECD countries is going to decline. Uh, the reason the o OPEC is more optimistic about global oil demand is because they think it's going to rise in the non-OECD uh, countries. But I, I think, you know, for countries like the U.S., uh, they expect that electrification of transportation is going to happen reasonably rapidly now, and we're going to see uh, lower demand. So then that raises the question, if, uh, if there's less demand for U.S. crude oil because uh, gasoline and diesel demand is in decline does do the americans then say yeah you know what canada i know that cheap bitumen you know it's it's we get a, a, a for 10 to 15 dollar discount on it we really appreciate that but you know we got to keep our folks at in in texas and oklahoma and, and new mexico and so on uh, employed so sorry this act's going to apply to you i don't know is that a, a likely scenario it's a complicated question, and and to to start out by backing up to those uh, global projections of demand, the 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 projections of decrease in demand that that are being made by IEA and others, are would be much more severe if we were just talking about transportation uh, fuels, right? There, the some of the the decrease doesn't go down as abruptly as it could because it's buoyed by rising demand in uh, primarily Asian and South Asian countries for petrochemicals uh, and and to some extent transport fuels as well. So if we're talking about our exports to the U.S., uh, those exports are primarily for transportation fuel. They're not primarily for petrochemical feedstock. So the demand in that case goes down even more abruptly. And I've seen studies of the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act in the States on expected expected impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act on demand for transportation, for gasoline. Um, and by 2030, the impact is a good chunk of the entire export volume of Canadian uh, crude to the States. That's not to say it's all gonna come out of Canada, but to underline your point that there is gonna be pressure on U.S. producers, and they may look to shut down Canadian competition. On the other hand, however, we currently sell to a bunch of captive customers most of our oil, but the overwhelming majority of our crude oil goes to Midwestern producers that are tooled to, to use Canadian heavy sour crude as a feedstock. It can't easily be substituted for the much lighter, sweeter U.S. production. So there's that as a balance, but that doesn't hold in the long term. In the short, the medium term, that equipment is fixed and they're going to want the Canadian feedstock. Uh, but in the longer term, as demand falls uh, and as the U.S. production looks more appealing uh, uh, and, and there's not enough demand to sustain or not enough demand to sustain the, the existing supply, then we are facing more trouble. There's, there's always the potential to change over your equipment. It's very expensive, but we we can't sit comfortable on the fact that we've got captive customers. Well, one of the points I'm making these days, Aaron, is that um, disruption doesn't happen uh, when displacement starts. Long before you've lost market share, 
the the investors are getting the message. The investors are starting to take their capital elsewhere, or they want you know really really high returns that make it difficult for you to you know finance your your operations. Uh, there are uh, you know increasingly stringent climate policies. There are policies like like this one we're talking about, and so uh, saying as. Canadian Alberta politicians do and some federal politicians do. Oh, don't worry about it. There's going to be oil demand for a long time. There may very well be, but you might be selling it at $30 or $40 a barrel and you might not be able to get any financing or insurance and you might on and on and on. And so essentially you're a disruptive industry that's barely hanging on by a thread. Sure, there's demand. Good luck to you. Yeah, I, you're right. You know, long before we feel the pinch from losing market share, we're going to feel the pinch from falling prices because global demand uh, is going down. And we we saw how painful the most recent OPEC meeting was at trying to rein in discipline within OPEC, even within the the modest falls in demand we've seen up to this point. When it starts getting serious, that discipline is going to fall to pieces. So, you know. Yes, we will still have, even even when we have captive customers in the U.S. that are buying our crude, they're not going to be buying it at a very high price. So this is, you know, it goes to the kind of disruption we're going to be facing in this sector. I mean, we're, we're going a little off topic because that we still will be selling to the states. But even in that scenario, U.S. producers are going to be looking for help protecting them from the competition because they'll be hurting as well. And so that See, does bring us back to our scenario. These kinds of tools will be in place and can be used to protect U.S. producers against Canadian production. Exactly. That's why I think it's not actually far afield. I think it's it, it's part of the, the framework in which we need to understand uh, Canadian oil and gas production in the, for the future. This, you know, I, I can't say this enough. You know, Alberta, it, and for non-Canadian listeners, uh, or if you're in Eastern Canada, which means you don't know anything about Western Canada. That's another Western Canadian <laughs> joke, by the way. Uh, but what it means, you know, there's a there's a uh, there's no sense of urgency in Alberta, and Alberta does eighty percent of produces eighty percent of of Canada's oil, and you know they just think that, you know, well it's okay, you know, once it starts to decline, somehow we'll we'll get along, we'll muddle through again. It's it's the lack of urgency and. It's that this, the framework, the this, the uh, environment in which these producers are operating is changing almost, you know, certainly annually, but it's changing really quickly. And this act is just one more example of how all of uh, that environment, uh, you know, is being transformed. That's right. And I, you know, I, I talk about the, the, the green wave. Right. It's it, if you look uh, even three years ago, we didn't have a CVAM. We didn't have bills like this. We didn't have a deforestation free products regulation. We didn't have the the stoppage of Mercosur based on the embodied carbon in deforestation products beef shipped to the EU. We you know a lot of this stuff just wasn't on the radar. This is a fairly new phenomenon. And it doesn't look likely to subside anytime soon because climate science keeps getting more dire, impacts keep getting bigger, politicians keep having to respond. And one way they're being asked to respond is by lowering the carbon footprint of consumption. People want to know that the stuff they're consuming doesn't actually have a huge carbon footprint. Well, if you're a high carbon producer of petrocarb, <laughs> petrochemicals, uh, gasoline, crude, natural gas, then you should be worried about those kinds of trends. And, and 
it's hard to predict how they're going to play out. We never saw this bill right. coming. I never saw this bill coming. I've been the one that's been saying, you know, vehemently, look, we don't face a problem based on our GSG intensity. The U.S. is going to keep buying our oil. I said that. I, I've been, I, you know, and to some extent that may still be true. But I've taken a step back on that argument after I look at what's in this bill. Right. Indeed. We, Indeed. We, we don't know how these things are going to be coming, but we can see the trend lines. They're quite clear. What about the treatment of low income and lower middle income countries? And one of, and again, uh, you know, the, the competition that uh, oil sands producers face in the Gulf Coast market comes from Latin American countries, you know, like uh, Brazil and Venezuela and Colombia and, and Mexico. How will they be treated? They get some pretty sweet special treatment here, actually. So low low income and lower middle income countries uh, benefit from what's called Section 203 in this act. Um, the first five years, no charges at all. The next 10 years, they can extend that exemption if, if the new producers in those sectors of the covered goods are not more than 50% more GHG intense than the U.S. Uh, sectoral average, national sectoral average. And then you can, you know, you, you can keep extending that for 10 year periods. So this is pretty special treatment. Um, and you could see Venezuela benefiting from this, you know, um, you could see a lot of Canadian competitors benefiting from those, those kinds of charges, putting us further behind them in terms of, uh, in terms of our competitive aid. Yeah. What, how does this bill fit into international agreements? Well, if we think about how it fits into the U.S.'s obligations under the World Trade Agreement or World Trade Organization, um, <laughs> it doesn't. There, there are so many places in this act that are that that are not just questionable, but outright black and white breach of U.S. obligations under World Trade Organization rules. But um, how do I put this delicately? That has become less and less of an issue in the U.S. Uh, as the years go by. So, so I'm not sure how salient that is anymore. And and the uh, you know we as we know or as you may know, the World Trade Organization's appellate body no longer exists because the U.S. has refused to appoint uh, jurors to it. So the U.S. has on many occasions since that state of disrepair has been put in place has appealed negative judgments against it into the void. So they make an appeal to the appellate body, which doesn't exist anymore. Therefore, the, the negative findings of a panel don't apply to it. So, you know, if, if, if what you're trying to get at is, is this thing legal under trade rules? Probably not. Uh, and then the question is, do the, does the U.S. care and does it matter? Also, probably not. Right. And given the, uh, the, uh, the fact that the U.S. is desperately trying to catch up to, to China, uh, in, on clean energy uh, industrial development, uh, you can see why they would be motivated to not care what the WTO thinks. So you made the point in your commentary that the act as drafted is flawed in three significant ways. What are those? Well, first, it would be extremely complex to administer from the U.S. side. And I used as an example there the idea that you get, you know, just determining what the charge is. The U.S. doesn't have a carbon price. So what's the charge? It's based on 25 different tiers for each good. And the, the value that's assigned to each of those tiers uh, is, is defined differently and based on an objective to reduce GHG intensity in those foreign goods to a certain level. 
that is, you know, that's just one facet of the thing that is extremely complex and subject, you know, and that leads us to the second problem. The second problem being that it's subject to far too much discretionary power. So this thing was set up, and you have to think deliberately, with a huge amount of discretion on the part of the U.S., which allows it to exert geopolitical influence as, as it feels like it, it you know, wants to, which, which gets us to the third problem, which is this thing is not really as build something to protect clean production. It's not something to advance climate change. It is really more about exerting the U.S. influence in a geopolitical context and protecting U.S. producers. Why am I surprised? Well, the obvious answer is <laughs> yes. I'm not. Because, I mean, look at how, you know, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, the most significant climate change bill the U.S. has ever had, and they couldn't call it a climate change bill. You know, they had to right. they had to tie it to to inflation reduction and, and afford, affordability issues. So the word climate change and greenhouse gases doesn't appear anywhere in this bill. It's called foreign pollution. Yeah, yeah, sorry, it does it does appear in the definitions, but this is the Foreign Pollution Pricing Act, right? And so it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's a lot easier to sell a bill like this when you're talking about China than if you're talking about reducing emissions to lower greenhouse gas emissions, so that you know the whole world can we can meet our 1.5 C uh, target. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, what are the odds, do you think, that this bill is going to pass? What are the uh, have you been following the politics of it uh, at all? A little bit. I mean, it's hard to follow the politics of the Beltway from where I sit in Interior, British Columbia. But I, I, I know a few people, and it seems like it's it is uh, they're they're working the hallways now to try to drum up the necessary support to get this thing passed, and they have a fighting chance. You know, and I wouldn't have said that about any of the previous bills that tried to impose some kind of a, a border carbon adjustment in the states. Most of them tried to do it by putting a starting with a carbon price, and you know you knew those weren't going to go anywhere. Um, but this one has a fighting chance. I wouldn't write it off. Uh, I wouldn't. In fact, I'm, I'm risk averse. I wouldn't take a bet one way or the other on this one. Well, we'll we're going to watch this one with some interest, uh, Aaron, and um, so please. Uh, uh, Feel free to tag me on on Twitter as you are wont to do occasionally for these kinds of developments. And um, when it if it passes, we'll have you back to discuss it again. Thank you very much for this. Thanks again. Always a pleasure.